Hailing frequencies open, and welcome to Forgotten TV Supplemental 12. In the latest podcast that went behind the scenes of Sun Classic Pictures and Grizzly Adams, we talked about Sun's pre-production research they would engage in before producing a film, foreshadowing the type of market research TV network ABC would do in just a few years to reach number one status. But as we saw with Sun's film flops, The Lincoln Conspiracy, The President Must Die, and Hangar 18, the benefit of market research was somewhat limited in scope and successfulness. It's interesting that although the two mentioned political conspiracy films tested extremely highly, this did not translate into box office success for them. Sun director James L. Conway noted that Cellier's audience testing also didn't seem to work as well with scripted narrative films as it did for selecting documentary topics. Testing the docudrama ideas was a very effective way to gauge audience interest, but it didn't always work. As a test subject, The President Must Die, a documentary about JFK's assassination, was strong, but the movie failed. Testing became less effective as we moved into dramatic movies, like Hangar 18 and The Boogans. If you recall, Hangar 18 purported to tell the tale of a government cover-up regarding a UFO observed by the space shuttle crew that subsequently crash-landed in the Arizona desert and was taken to an Air Force base in Texas and tucked away in the titular aircraft hangar. I'll note that I discovered Hangar 18 was originally intended to be another Sun pseudo-documentary. Sun researchers were looking into a UFO conspiracy that an Air Force base hangar was housing extraterrestrial spacecraft, a la the now much more well-known Area 51. This originated with the claims of one Robert Spencer Carr, first reported in the Tampa Tribune in January 1974. Carr, born in 1909, had been a fiction writer of the 1920s. Having his speculative stories published in the pulp magazine, Weird Tales. He found some success in Hollywood, as at least three of his stories were turned into feature films. Hot Stuff and Why Leave Home in 1929 and The Rampant Age in 1930, based on the novel he wrote at age 18. All were about the dating lives of well-off socialites and their hangers-on, and served as welcome distractions for Depression-era audiences. A story of modern jazz-mad youth of today, of young love and dancing daughters from the novel that created a worldwide sensation, written by an 18-year-old schoolboy. 1930 print ad in the Rochester Journal. Carr's decision to join the Communist Party in the 1930s stalled his career, and he even left the U.S. to live in the Soviet Union for a time. That is, until he witnessed firsthand Stalin's great purge of the late 1930s, after which he became disillusioned with communism. Returning to the U.S. and renouncing his communist ties, Carr enlisted in the Army in 1944 and wrote speeches for officers to deliver to the troops. Following the war, he wrote and produced educational films for the State Department. He clearly had an interest in writing science fiction stories and novellas and was published in several magazines and paperback books. Many of his stories were variations on the possibility that extraterrestrials were visiting the Earth. His 1949 story, Easter Eggs, also known as The Invaders, featured two alien ovoid spaceships landing on both the White House lawn and at the Kremlin, and was published in the Saturday Evening Post. Showing that this line of interest carried over into real life, Carr was also a member of NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, a citizen UFO research group. Through the Freedom of Information Act, we also have records of Carr writing President Truman, suggesting protocols to implement to force a first contact between humans and the pilots of flying saucers. 
The day prior to the 1974 Tampa Tribune article, Carr had engaged a U.S. Air Force astronomy professor in an onstage debate about UFOs at the University of South Florida, where he taught creative writing. One of the best-kept secrets of the United States government is that in Hangar 18 at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base near Dayton, Ohio, there are two flying saucers of unknown origin, a University of South Florida instructor said yesterday. The alien craft Carr referred to supposedly originated from a claimed 1948 Aztec, New Mexico UFO crash an incident often referred to as the Other Roswell. The Aztec crash story originated in a 1949 column in Variety by author Frank Scully. It was exposed as a hoax in the 1950s, but later was resurrected by several ufologists in the 1970s, sometimes attempting to merge it with the 1947 Roswell crash story. It may be of further interest that the 1947 Roswell story did not emerge as UFO lore until the late 1970s, after the Aztec story did. Roswell, as a UFO narrative, was rocketed to fame by a 1980 book co-written by none other than Charles Berlitz, who had popularized both the Bermuda Triangle and the Philadelphia Experiment into the paranormal zeitgeist. Carr claimed that both a crashed and an intact alien craft were housed at the previously unknown Hangar 18 of Ohio's Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, evidently the first such mention of this location in UFO lore. Later that year, he expanded his claims to include 12 dead beings, also in deep freeze at Wright-Patterson and that autopsies were conducted on some of them. The 65-year-old car thus also became the originator of the entire alien autopsy line of ufology, a concept exploited over the decades, perhaps most infamously in 1995's Alien Autopsy, Fact or Fiction, broadcast on the Fox TV network. Of course, by then, the alien autopsy was claimed to have been on bodies recovered from the far more popularly known 1947 Roswell crash and not the now obscure 1948 Aztec crash. In his later years, Carr had quieted down about Aztec and Hangar 18, but would claim in a 1984 interview that spacecraft would land on the water in front of his Clearwater, Florida home and the occupants of said ships would come inside to chat with him. Following his 1994 death, his son would say Carr had a lifetime habit of telling the UFO tales in order to gain attention and be more interesting. But even Sun's researchers in the late 1970s found insufficient evidence for a real conspiracy of UFOs being housed in an Air Force base and they nixed a Hangar 18 documentary. Instead, they took the concept and turned it into a screenplay, releasing it in June 1980 as Hangar 18. How did the United States develop the technology to pull ahead of the Russians in the space race? Many believe that a sophisticated guidance system was salvaged from a crashed UFO. Now, for the first time, a motion picture tells the story of these incredible events. It started with an accident in space. And it led to the crash of a large metallic disc in the Arizona desert. Military authorities immediately sealed off the area. We think it was a controlled landing. Give me a passenger to General Morrison. It means someone brought it in. Just lights. No visible sign of life. Not outside. And that someone is still in there. Is the government concealing information it considers too startling to reveal? Well, we're not going to go running around yelling, flying saucer. We don't finish what we started. It's all over for the president. Keep the lid on Hangar 18. Why have the facts been kept hidden from the American public? What is it our government doesn't want us to know? This new motion picture reveals the startling proof that the government actually has the wreckage of a flying saucer and the bodies of alien astronauts. 
you will learn the incredible story of the most startling government cover-up ever conceived. See the story of the UFO cover-up, Hangar 18. That September, the season premiere of In Search Of included Hangar 18 in its discussion on UFO cover-ups. Hangar 18 was aired on NBC in 1983 in the wake of the highly popular V miniseries, but with a changed title and an alternate ending. Tonight, is the Air Force hiding an alien warship? We've got to keep this thing bottled. A close encounter becomes a deadly secret. That could have been us, you know. If what they know gets out, it could destroy the world. Darren McGavin. Beings from another world have been here before. Robert Vaughn. Two men are dead. We don't handle things that way. This is the White House. And Gary Collins. We've been set up from the start. The invasion force is coming. Next. Leonard Malton would say the new ending undermined the plot of the film. But having never seen this version to my recollection, I can't tell you what was different about the NBC version. In 1989, the film was riffed on Mystery Science Theater 3000 during the first very low-budget KTMA season. Due to some kind of copyright weirdness, the film seems to be in the public domain, which resulted in its release on VHS from several bargain basement video suppliers. Today, it is readily available on DVD and a Blu-ray from Olive Films but can also be easily found free online, including some incredible high-definition versions on YouTube. Ironically, Hangar 18 lore is now relatively obscure compared to that focused around Nevada's Area 51, a real classified Air Force facility that flies and houses experimental aircraft, which shot to UFO lore popularity in 1989 due to the claims of Bob Lazar, promoted by programs like Coast to Coast AM. Director James L. Conway, who had done episodes of Grizzly Adams and several films from Sun, went on to work in mainstream TV with Matt Houston, Hotel, and MacGyver. Paramount brought him on in 1987 to be a director on Star Trek, and he ended up helming 18 episodes across four Star Trek series over the course of 18 years. Conway revisited Hangar 18, sort of, in the Season 4 episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Little Green Men. In that episode, Ferengi's Quark, Nog, and Rom travel to 1947 Earth, where their shuttle was housed in... Hangar 18 in Roswell, New Mexico. Conway recalled the episode in a 2012 interview for the official Star Trek website. I loved Little Green Men for a couple of reasons. One, in my low-budget independent film days, I did a movie called Hangar 18, which is basically a version of Little Green Men. It's the other side of it. Aliens had crash-landed and the government was hiding their spacecraft for that reason it ended up that the government had to blow up the hangar and the people inside it. And Little Green Men was just a very funny telling of the Hangar 18 story. It was so clever and so much fun. I knew that they didn't do much humor on DS9. When we sat down to do the tone meeting, Ira Bear said, Are you sure you can get the humor here? I said, Ira, don't worry about it. It's going to be just fine. And it was. He was very happy. In 1947, in a place called Roswell... You can't keep this from the public forever. One event shook the world. Beings from another planet have landed on Earth. My name is Quark. I've got a business proposition for you. Now Quark's playing for profit in Earth's past. No, I want to go home. We're not going anywhere. Inside of a year, we'll be running this place. On an all-new episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine... Of particular interest is that during their 1970s heyday, Sun Classic Pictures and Charles Sellier would only produce a G-rated film, something that at one point he was quite proud of, as he told Joel Kotkin from the Washington Post in 1977. 
When I got into the business, everyone said you couldn't make money with a G-rated film. But I gave them Grizzly Adams. Non-violent, non-sexual, just a guy walking around with a bear with a smile on his face. And last season on NBC, we beat out the bionic woman in the ratings. As brought out in the main podcast, Selyer thus took note of a void in Hollywood entertainment, and that many families were largely staying home from the movies in the wake of an increase in profane, sexual, violent, and occult content in mainstream Hollywood films. Selyer. The people are becoming more aware of what's good for them. They're becoming more uneasy with what's been coming. There's a demand for less violence and sex coming from a lot of people out there. Universal's Tom Mount responded, We're not ignoring the family market. We have movies like Heroes, which is a simple love story. It's not Benji Come Home, but anyone in the family can come and enjoy it. Interestingly, the 1977 Henry Winkler film he mentions received harsher ratings, indicating it was in fact not suitable for children in most countries due to its depiction of war and post-traumatic stress disorder. But while some Hollywood studios thought they were serving the family film audience with films like The Bad News Bears, conservative families in middle America often stayed away from such PG-rated fare due to a surprisingly large dose of profanity, as well as children smoking, gambling, and drinking alcohol. In a PG-rated film? Yes, PG films didn't always have the saccharine, mild image they do now. And even a G rating didn't always guarantee a family film, as a third of all films used to receive this rating. Wait, what? To understand this, Let's look at a review of the U.S. film rating system. The MPAA, or Motion Picture Association of America, an industry trade association, introduced the film rating system in 1968, after decades of erosion of the old Motion Picture Production Code of 1930. Commonly called the Hayes Code, named after the Presbyterian elder, Postmaster General and former chairman of the RNC, who was made president of the forerunner of the MPAA, the code was enacted in response to a growing hodgepodge of local censorship laws that had been popping up across the country that threatened the very existence of the film industry. Chicago had enacted the first of these back in 1907, where the chief of police screened all films to determine if they were suitable to be projected to local audiences. This was followed by Detroit, as well as the states of Pennsylvania, Ohio, Kansas, Maryland, New York, and Virginia. Additionally, at least 100 cities empowered local censorship boards. How could a studio comply with potentially hundreds of state and local decency laws their films would have to adhere to in order to be distributed nationwide? To assuage the moral hand-wringing of the public and groups like the Catholic Legion of Decency, as well as to save itself from being regulated to a literal death, the industry chose to enact a form of self-censorship. Thus, in 1922, the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, MPPDA, was formed, and Will H. Hayes was named the association's president. Hayes' first attempt to deal with the censorship crisis was called the Formula, later referred to as the Don'ts and Be Carefuls, a list of rules which initially were often ignored, but eventually codified into the Motion Picture Production Code enforcement of which began in earnest by 1934. Under the code, studios were supposed to align their films with its religiously influenced moral guidelines, which had specific rules as to what was allowed to be depicted in a film, which were given a literal seal of approval. The code thus enforced the self-censorship mainstream Hollywood studios participated in for over 30 years, and that most films adhered to, 
the Hays Code forbade depictions of nudity, strong profanity, and sexual situations, but also extended to a myriad of other rules involving the more vague vulgarity and shocking scenes. These included rules against depicting white slavery, interracial relationships, indecent dancing, lustful kissing, sexual and venereal disease education, and illegal drug use. Also, murder, crime, and adultery were not to be glorified, and no religious faith was to be ridiculed. Even after strict code enforcement began, audiences could still find pretty salacious entertainment at some theaters. During this era, how did what are now called exploitation films, such as The Cocaine Fiends, Child Bride, Sex Madness, and other such films get distributed? These were released outside the Hollywood studio system, without code approval, and were often distributed via road shows or four-walling, directly booking a theater or assembly hall to exhibit the film. The films often purported to educate the public about the dangers of drug use or about premarital sex, pregnancy, and what were then called venereal diseases but were, in reality, sensationalizing these topics in an era when perhaps three-quarters of public schools still didn't teach any form of sex education. Perhaps the most well-known of these included the now-hilarious Reefer Madness, a 1930s film made by a church group which offered to educate the public of the evils of the devil's weed. In fact, the competing film, just called Marijuana, had the subtitle, Weed with Roots in Hell. Although the use of cannabis had a very long history in the United States as an over-the-counter medicinal product, marijuana, a word that didn't even exist in American culture until after 1910, would now be associated with Mexican immigrants, people of color, and other undesirable elements in a national campaign of outrageously racist propaganda. If you doubt that, look up the congressional testimony of Harry Anslinger, first director of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Likewise, there were many sexploitation films, but 1945's Mom and Dad reigned supreme as the most famous. A product of film promoter H. Kroger Babb, who had brought audiences the now infamous Child Bride, Mom and Dad would be shown to sex-segregated audiences. Women and girls at 7 p.m., men and boys at 9 p.m., for example. The film was a fictional narrative about teenage Joan, a sweet, innocent girl growing up in this fast-moving age, but kept ignorant of sexual matters by her parents primarily her prim and proper mother. Of course, Joan goes too far with her boyfriend and gets in trouble. At the 67-minute mark, the film was halted for an in-person speech by radio's hygiene commentator, Elliot Forbes. Of course, each theater had a different Elliot Forbes appear that would hawk booklets on sex hygiene to the audience. The film would briefly resume Joan's story, then the audience would watch as the high school class in the film viewed a set of sex education films, which would show the birth of a baby, followed by explicit scare footage of infected sex organs, concluding with Joan and the baby barely surviving childbirth in the version most commonly watched today. Although it is believed there were a variety of fates Joan and Baby were subjected to in different versions. The promotion of this highly profitable film is a lesson in mid-century hucksterism. Kroger Bab would sometimes have to have the film pre-screened by local community and church leaders, and would often trim out the explicit parts for these screenings, pulling a bait-and-switch. Babb would also hire men to pose as street corner preachers, protesting the films and warning the public to stay away from the theaters showing it. The film played across the country for some 20 years. I found ads for showings as late as 1968. 
and it is thought to have grossed as much as $100 million over the years. In 1948, Universal Pictures tried to replicate the success of Mom and Dad with The Story of Bob and Sally. But when it became clear Bob and Sally would not get an NPAA seal, the rights were sold off and bought by a Texas theater owner named Gidney Talley. Talley hit the roadshow circuit, following the blueprint H. Kroger Babb had set forth for Mom and Dad to a T. The segregated showtimes, the noted commentator, the sex hygiene booklets, the whole bit. Shocking beyond description, the most revealing picture ever filmed. When you see this picture, you will understand why grammar school children cannot be admitted. The bold, frank, human truth behind the failure of young marriage. The passionate problems of today's youth, who forget about consequences and defy convention. The subject that has been hushed. Come prepared to see something never before shown on any screen. The story of Bob and Sally. And that is just from one newspaper ad. Tally eventually joined forces with Bab and two other film hucksters, Erwin Joseph and Floyd Lewis, to form Modern Film Distributors, which booked what were now incredibly dated exploitation films as late as 1971. Why did I just go off on a tangent about Mom and Dad and a couple of Grindhouse film promoters? Well, in 1985, I started working at a newly built theater in West Texas owned by Gidney Talley Jr., who I worked for until his death in 1989. Central and South Texas residents may recall Mr. Talley Jr. from his appearances on PM Magazine and other San Antonio TV. Tally stored a bunch of old film prints, boxes of old movie trailers, posters, and related paraphernalia behind one of our theater screens. This included several prints of Mom and Dad and boxes of the sex hygiene booklets that were sold for a dollar. And all us teenagers that were working there had a good laugh. We vaguely knew he made a movie in the 70s, but it wasn't until randomly looking up stuff online in 2015 that I came across all this information about Mr. Talley and his father. The film Gidney Talley Jr. made in 1973, filmed in San Antonio, was called Prelude to Happiness. This was the beginning of Susan's nightmare. Now all she remembers is the pain. God! Your leg had to be amputated. You couldn't have cut off my leg. She had her whole life ahead of her. It's not fair. There is no physical reason why you can't have a husband and children. I know what my life will be like. No man's going to want me when I'm only half a woman. I, I said we wouldn't have to postpone the wedding because there isn't going to be any wedding. We had to remove your leg. I can't marry you, Susan. You're never going to be anything but a hopeless cripple. Susan would have to forget to be what it had been, a future she desperately needed to share. It would on what kind of a woman she was. The film starred real-life amputee Rose Petra as a hit-and-run victim who wakes up in the hospital to find her leg has been amputated above the knee. Her fiancé dumps her, and the doctor that performed the amputation falls in love with her. As you heard, the trailer plays like an exploitation film, but the film itself plays as sincere and is not the worst film I've ever seen. There's a great write-up of Gidney Talley and his son on the Temple of Schlock blog linked in the show notes. But back to the movie rating system. By the 1960s, changes in society began to be reflected in films released from the mainstream Hollywood studios, as things that were once seen as offensive in the 1930s were no longer seen as problematic. Films like Some Like It Hot, Psycho and the James Bond films depicted things officially still banned by the code, yet were clearly there on screen for audiences to see. Enforcement of the code became impossible once so many filmmakers were ignoring it. 
one result of what many considered to be objectionable content reappearing in films was the formation of scores of local film ratings boards and groups forming across the U.S., many religiously managed or influenced. Catholics had the National Catholic Office for Motion Pictures classification, as well as that Legion of Decency that operated for decades. The Legion could issue a C to condemn a particular film, which observant Catholics were encouraged to follow. But the sway of the Legion also extended to dictate the moral tastes of the larger Protestant public. Even after the code had been fully implemented, films like 1943's The Outlaw with the buxom Jane Russell or 1947's Black Narcissus, which depicted nuns questioning their faith, received the dreaded C. Even well into the 1960s, Father Sullivan from the NCOMP would appear in local newspapers to explain why certain films were condemned. Individual cities like Dallas, Texas, created their own film ratings boards in the 1960s in imitation of the earlier 20th century trend. Created in 1965, the Dallas Motion Picture Classification Board, consisting of mostly white church ladies, characterization my own, but also pretty accurate, would meet every Wednesday to screen movies and bestow their ratings of either suitable or not suitable. For decades in the city of Dallas, children under 16 could not attend any movie labeled not suitable without their parents. Films that played in the city were additionally labeled with an S for sex, V for violence, L for language, D for drugs, N for nudity, and P for perversion. Other cities came up with similar classifications. By the late 1960s, 42 of these local censorship groups had popped up. Some theaters were implementing their own rating systems, such as the drive-ins of Wichita, Kansas, where films were given one of four categories. In a structure that now sounds familiar, Category 1 indicated general audiences, Category 2 adults and young people 12 and up, Category 3 adults and mature young people age 16 and up, and Category 4, Adults Only, to be seen only by those age 21 and over. 1965's She with Ursula Andress was given a 3, while 1962's Lolita and 1966's Blow Up were both given a 4. A group called the Film Estimate Board, the PTA, Parents Magazine, and sometimes local newspaper columnists themselves all also issued guidance on the audiences that particular films were suitable for. And by 1967, you could open your local newspaper to find what as many as five different groups thought about the appropriateness of a given film playing in your area. By 1968, Facing a repeat of the 1920s censorship crisis and proliferation of local ratings boards, the industry group, now called the Motion Picture Association of America, made the decision to abandon the increasingly ignored Motion Picture Code altogether. Forming the Classification and Ratings Administration, or CARA, as an independent division, a voluntary, age-based, industry content rating system was devised that would apply one of three lettered symbols to films. G would suggest a film meant for general exhibition with no age restriction. M would mean a film was suggested for mature audiences and that parental discretion was advised. R meant the film was restricted and children under 16 were not to be admitted unless accompanied by a parent. Then, at the behest of the National Association of Theater Owners, or NATO, the creation of an additional classification was added. Fearful of the potential of legal issues resulting from authorities still wishing to implement censorship at a local level, NATO urged the addition of an X rating that would allow a film to be restricted to those 17 and older to address this concern. 
In a decision that later came back to bite them, the MPAA did not copyright the X rating, with the intent of allowing filmmakers to self-apply this classification, in addition to being a ratings option for films submitted to the board. Initially applied to mainstream films the ratings board simply felt were adult in nature, such as the Oscar-winning Midnight Cowboy and the nominated A Clockwork Orange, 25 X ratings were issued the first year of Kara's operation, and 48 the second year. However, by the third, the number had dropped to six. What happened? The X rating began to be hijacked by the burgeoning pornography industry as producers of sexually explicit films started to self-apply the X rating and even create the fictitious double X and triple X categories. Pornography on film was previously something consumed as what were called stag films, clandestinely screened shorts in back rooms for all-male audiences, or perhaps viewed in a coin-operated peep show machine if you lived in a city that had an adult bookstore or euphemistically named amusement arcade. In the 1960s, after families had fled city centers for the suburbs, major downtown movie houses that had been built in the 30s and 40s began to show these adult films. By 1960, New York City's Globe Theater, previously known as the New York Theater, steps away from the corner of Broadway and 42nd, was already playing risque, nudie films to people willing to go downtown and risk being seen entering. As these theaters proliferated, by the mid-60s, ads for what was playing on these screens began to creep into newspaper movie listings in major cities across the country. By the end of the 60s, the nudie films being shown had morphed into explicit pornography. But quite a stigma was still attached to patronizing such establishments, usually located in what was now the seedy district of your local city. But in 1972, when even middle American housewives were enticed to head out to theaters to see a certain film whose title was later enshrined in our nation's history as part of the Watergate scandal, pornography started becoming more mainstream, and some would argue America's entire movie-going audience lost a little innocence. Ironically, like Sun Classic Pictures, the producers of Deep Throat also took a cue from Kroger Bab and four-walled the film in theaters across the nation, creating the basis for a copyright dispute over the film that continued into the 21st century. Meanwhile, the other film classifications were undergoing changes. M was first changed to GP in 1970, then to PG in 1972, specifying parental guidance suggested some material may not be suitable for pre-teenagers. For the first couple of years of implementation, G was the default rating a film would be given, unless specific content prompted the rating spore to apply a harsher rating. With the G rating initially being applied to over 30% of all films released, this encompassed quite a wide range of content, most of which was not even aimed at children. Examples include 2001 A Space Odyssey, the first four Planet of the Apes films, Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! The Odd Couple, the terrifying The Andromeda Strain, the war films The Green Berets and Tora Tora Tora, and perhaps most infamously, the bloody hammer horror film Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, the very first film to which the G rating was applied. Dracula has risen from the grave. You just can't keep a good man down. This picture's been rated G. 
During these very early days, the board was obviously still fumbling their way around the new ratings. And many of these films should probably have gotten an M, GP, or PG. As the 1970s progressed, fewer and fewer films were rated G. And by the end of the decade, in both the minds of the public as well as the movie studios, this rating had come to be associated with strictly family-friendly fare, such as The Muppet Movie and The Black Stallion, two of less than a dozen films to receive this rating in 1979. But even before then, the G rating began to be seen as something of a pop culture pariah. In 1977's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, young Brad Neary codified the jaded attitude most kids already held by that time. Who wants to go see some dumb cartoon rated G for kids? That same year, when Star Wars surprisingly came back from the ratings board with a G rating, Fox sent it right back to them to obtain a PG. According to publicity manager Charles Lippincott, members of the ratings team assigned to the film had supposedly dozed off during objectionable scenes, allowing the film to slip through with a G. Since ratings board members are anonymous, no word on whether these same individuals sat in on Dracula Has Risen from the Grave nine years earlier, but you have to wonder. Even Sun Classic Pictures couldn't avoid the rating shift that took place, and by 1979, they too began putting out PG-rated films. The trend of the G rating being seen as something for filmmakers to now avoid probably reached its pinnacle in 1982 with the production of both Annie and E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Both films had mild profanity inserted specifically to avoid the G rating. Annie had originally received an appropriate G, but producer Ray Stark had a Carol Burnett line rewritten to include two instances of damn. Likewise, Steven Spielberg also thought E.T. would be more attractive to the all-important teenage movie-going audience if it were not rated G. Saying of films with that rating, It seems to say to people that it's too young for adolescence. For all practical purposes, the G rating was effectively dead at this point, with exceedingly few films aimed at only the youngest movie audiences receiving this rating. From the late 70s to the mid-80s, it was now the PG rating that encompassed the widest range of unpredictable content that could surprise parents. Everything from mild entries like Annie or E.T. to the relatively violent Jaws or the horrific Poltergeist that was twice given an R, but in likely the most infamous and irresponsible ratings fix of all time. 20 out of 24 ratings board members were convinced in a ratings appeal by a persuasive Spielberg, as he had done twice before with Jaws and Raiders of the Lost Ark, to change their votes from R and give the film a PG with no cuts to content. But it was revealed in a 2001 New Yorker article that prior to that vote, there had been a secret meeting between ratings board head Richard Hefner, two MGM executives, and Spielberg himself, a meeting engineered by MPAA president Jack Valenti over the financial repercussions should MGM's major summer release be slapped with an R. So, contrary to the later popular narrative that the PG-13 rating was born out of concerns over 1984 Spielberg films Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Gremlins, it was in the 1982 meeting over Poltergeist where the PG-13 rating was born. As Hefner promised Spielberg to develop a yet-to-be-named rating between PG and R for him. Thus, the entire rating system shifted again in 1985 with the introduction of PG-13. But that is another story. I should also point out that although technically submitting a film to get an MPAA rating has always been voluntary, 
It became a de facto requirement in order to have a successful wide-release film. Yes, producers can make a film and release it as unrated. However, in practice, they find most television stations will not allow advertising for unrated films. And in a cultural shift, many newspapers across the country stopped allowing ads for adult films playing at the porn theaters. And by the 1990s, they were rejecting ads for mainstream, unrated films. In addition, many theaters refused to run unrated films. And such films found they ran into issues with major chains like Walmart, refusing to carry the title for sale on home video formats. Incredibly, some local boards continued to operate well after the MPAA rating system became an entrenched part of moviegoing culture in the U.S. Dallas's Motion Picture Classification Board is empowered by city ordinance to rate films shown in Dallas as suitable or unsuitable for viewers under 16. Today, the board invited area theater men to its meeting, and right away, Chairman Mrs. Annette Strauss took some of the theater men to task for not printing the city classifications in all ads, both print and broadcast. The board also says it's trying to come up with a more understandable classifications for films, possibly using a system of symbols rather than letters, as is done now. But a long discussion between board members and theater men produced only more confusion. If a new system of classifications can be drawn up, the board hopes local broadcast and print outlets will help educate the public to the system. But as one theater owner put it, how can we expect the public to learn a new system when they're still confused about the old one? Arch Campbell, Channel 8 News. The last one to operate was none other than the aforementioned Dallas Motion Picture Classification Board, which screened PG and PG-13 films and could wield its not-suitable designation that had the power to kill local box office for these films. Through the years, the board received its share of mockery from sources like Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show to New York Times articles. Hollywood Studios called it that thing they have in Dallas. Films such as 1973's Paper Moon, 1974's The Front Page with Walter Matthau, 1976's The Outlaw Josie Wales, 1982's Poltergeist, and 1993's Last Action Hero were all deemed not suitable for various reasons. But by the 1990s, the Dallas board started to receive serious pushback from the industry. Attempts to rate 90s films Ghost and the Naked Gun as not suitable were met with legal challenges from Paramount generating legal costs for the otherwise lean-budgeted board. The board continued to operate until August of 1993, when its demise made national news. The MPAA, NATO, and the ACLU had all repeatedly implored the city of Dallas to disband the board and praised the city council's vote to finally abolish the taxpayer-funded effort. Jack Valenti I congratulate the City Council of Dallas for confirming once again that government at any level cannot and ought not be involved in what people read, listen to, or watch. However, not everyone was pleased. Board Chairman Fred Arbach, a local dentist and very active member of First Baptist Church, framed the fight to keep the board as part of a larger political culture war using phrasing that is by now familiar. Following the city council vote, Arbach said, They have signaled to the world that Dallas no longer cares and is a partner with Hollywood in the war on America. Hollywood has an agenda. The lifestyles of the Hollywood writers, producers, and directors are different than mainstream America. Interestingly, in early 1993, the board was considering adding DS to their list of content descriptors, standing for deviant sex, essentially a euphemism for any depiction of homosexuality, in response to one particular film, even though it fell outside their purview as it had been rated R. 
Arbach continued. You need to know it's there. Because if you see this over and over, you become desensitized to accepting it as the norm of behavior. The crying game is a perfect example. That is the biggest conspiracy of the media and the motion picture industry I've ever seen in my life. And that's why the MPAA can't be trusted. Why not just say there's homosexual activity? Just say it. And I bet 10 to 1, it would not have the box office attraction it had the first three weeks. Because people don't necessarily want to see it. A much more comprehensive examination of the MPAA's CARA board is found in the 2006 documentary, This Film Is Not Yet Rated. This documentary, viewable at watchdocumentaries.com, link in the show notes, revealed that although the MPAA has long claimed the anonymous ratings board members are parents of children aged 5 to 17, at least at the time the documentary was being researched, found that most ratings board members they were able to identify had no children or had none under the age of 18. It also exposes some of the workings of the black box that is the CARA Ratings Board, including the little-known appeals process, which incredibly still involves members of the clergy, one Catholic and one Episcopalian, as well as film industry leaders such as executives or buyers from eight theater chains and the American film market, the heads of Fox Searchlight and Sony Pictures, and a representative from NATO, the National Association of Theater Owners. That's all for this installment of Forgotten TV Supplemental. So join me on the next episode of Forgotten TV, where in a special presentation, we will take a look at the pioneer of educational television, Dr. Albert Burke, whose long-running syndicated series, Probe, examined political, social, and environmental issues of the day. Until next time, Forgotten TV, out.